Scano Segoani, Bojo Kwekwe, Talency. Good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. In Ottawa, 95.7 ELMNTFM or Toronto 106.5. You can also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app if you've downloaded that app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM and you can listen on your device anywhere across the country. And if you are listening across the country, you will be listening to this interview uh, or conversation, I like to say, rather than interview with, with our guest. Our guest this morning is Jamie Castor. He has uh, is, uh, made this documentary film called There Are No Fakes. I had the pleasure of viewing this, and I can tell you, uh, get ready, because it's quite a ride. Uh, it has to do with Norvell Morso, and uh, you, you probably have heard of him. Uh, he is actually, and I was surprised to learn this, as an Indigenous artist, he had, I believe, the first public viewing uh, for uh, some work in the ni- very early. It was 1962, I believe it was. He, he was the first Indigenous artist to get a commercial gallery uh, uh, show, and as one of the characters in the film puts it, uh, he he is considered the the indigenous artist who took the work from the gift shop to the gallery. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's one of the country's great artists. Full stop. He's certainly uh, uh, one of the most important indigenous artists. The first uh, the first to uh, have a retrospective at the National Gallery of Canada. Uh, he was admired apparently by Picasso and yeah. Chagall. I heard that. Just just had an incredible career, you know. And and he created a whole. School of uh, of painting, the the woodland school, mm-hmm. inspired by Anishinaabe uh, tradition and and uh, um, mythical characters, and and he he turned that into a a, a painting art form. And uh, there's no mistaking his work, and he's referred to as the Picasso of the North. That's right. Uh, and, and his work is as 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 dramatic and as as. Uh, I don't want to say shocking, but it's as just as as awe-inspiring as as Picasso's. It is. It is amazing and original and incredibly powerful, in my opinion, and plenty of other people's <laughs> yeah. opinions. Yeah, yeah. And so, do you want to tell us a little bit about about uh, more so for for people that that aren't familiar that that familiar with him and and what he did and where where he started and those kind of things. Well, um, yeah, we, we, we've discovered we d- discussed a bit of it, but he he uh, um, he was born in um, he was born in uh, um, well, what is now Thunder Bay, right? Uh, and he he you know was had a had a you know into considerable poverty. I know he spent some time in in uh, uh, residential schools. And was ultimately uh, largely raised by his his grandparents, mm. and I think it was through them, particularly his uh, grandfather Moses, who uh, um, <laughs> taught him a lot about a lot about his culture mm. and myth, and and began to to educate him in in his uh, in his past and tradition in the, in that regard, um, and uh, I believe he. Uh, um, he was sort of discovered well by by a number a number of people of of kind of uh, ethnographers of of one kind or an, and another who were who were looking for for art in uh, um, you know in in the north and uh, there were there one one uh, person was was a man named Selwyn Dudney <clears throat> who sort of 
began to to see remarkable talent in some of his early work, uh, which he was just doing on the side. I think he was working in a mine mm. early early in his life. He he moved to Beardmore at a certain point. And there was there was a couple, a local doctor uh, uh, called the Weinsteins, Joseph Weinstein, who who was a fairly worldly person, who who was uh, uh, an art uh, uh, collector himself, who began to to both collect Morisot's work, and and they became friends, and and uh, he began to introduce him to you know he had a lot of art books in in his house and. Through that friendship, Morisot began to discover the work of of the greats and mm. and expand his own style. Um, he was it, one thing led to another, as it were, and he wound up uh, um, he wound up uh, uh, getting a, his first a solo exhibition in 1962 in the Pollock Gallery in Toronto, and and it was a huge uh, uh, sellout success. And by all accounts, he he kind of became he he a bit of a rock star mm. right away and and you know one show led to show and one thing led to another and he started making you know making a lot of or you know as much more money than he than he had seen before um and and his success continued uh uh through the next couple of decades and he he led a very um Dramatic life, mm. you know. He he wound up having having shows being shown and collected certainly across the country, but beyond that, uh, uh, he's in many important Amer- uh, American museums. Uh, he he sold and showed in in Europe. He wound up showing in the in the Centre Pompidou uh, in Paris and other other exhibitions in France. I mean, he he had a, he had a major career, and his and his personal life was. Like a lot of rock stars, it was also pretty dramatic. He he had the you know from what I understand you know lived the highs and the lows, mm. uh, uh, lived a, a fairly wild life in terms of you know different, you know you know sex, drugs, and rock and roll basically. Mm. Mm. Uh, although it was partially in the disco era, per mm. one of my musical choices today. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, you know he he would he would be you know kind of driving around in in limousines which he he loved apparently at at one stage and uh, and then at other times he'd be he'd be living in Stanley Park mm. and it seems like you know people people who knew him well do not ever describe any aspect of of his life as tragic he 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 seems to have embraced it all. He ha- had an incredible connection and an incredible joie de vivre, and I'm not even going to presume to talk about you know the spiritual components of this, uh, uh, in which he saw it and and characterized the work. But he had a remarkable life, any way you slice it. Yeah. Now, what you just heard uh, Jamie Kastner describing is uh, some of Norvell Morso's life. Uh, Jamie has made a documentary film called "There Are No Fakes." And uh, we're going to. I wanted him to to sort of set the scene a little bit with uh, Norvell's uh, early life and and where he came from and those kind of things. Uh, you heard us uh, mention that that he was described as as, as Picasso of the North. Uh, he was revered by many great artists around the world, and then something happened, <laughs> and uh, that's where this film, I guess, starts to take off. The title gives you some indication of 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 where this goes. Uh, in that, Jamie, I'd like to know when when did you get involved? When did you start to become aware of this issue around uh, fake morsos? 
I got involved in this in the most random way. <clears throat> I got in touch with an old friend in 2015. I got in touch with uh, Kevin Hearn, uh, who is um, a musician, mm. an acclaimed musician in the Bare Naked Ladies. He also played with Lou Reed, among many other people. And I got in touch with him or got back in touch with him around 2015 uh, to see about possibly doing a film about Lou Reed, mm. in fact, with whom he had played and who had, had recently died at that point. And uh, that didn't uh, uh, take off particularly at that point. But Kevin told me about this trial that he was involved with and and thought that might be of interest to me for a documentary. And it certainly was an intriguing story. Uh, he had purchased uh, a painting <clears throat> from a reputable gallery in, in Yorkville, which he had believed to be by Norval Morisot. And... He came to understand that the uh, that the painting was of dubious origin, mm. that it may not be authentic, and one thing led to another, and he be and he, and he launched a lawsuit against this uh, uh, gallery, Maslach McLeod Gallery, as it was then known in uh, in Yorkville, and this lawsuit uh, uh, had dragged on, or or this case, you know, uh, uh, had had dragged on for for a number of years and was finally uh, uh, going to be coming to trial. And uh, uh, it did come to trial in, in 2018. We, we film around, around this trial. It sort of provides the framework for, for this film. But as soon as Kevin launched this lawsuit, he found himself embroiled first in this crazy feud uh, um, where there, there were kind of two clear factions of people most of whom were white, which becomes part of the sort of dark comedy of the film's first half, each of whom were, were claiming to be the true defenders of this indigenous legend, legendary indigenous artist's legacy. And they were, uh, um, they were calling each other all sorts of names uh, online, Nazis, one thing mm. and another. Mm. Uh, there, there was a, a bunch of other corollary lawsuits that had piled up in the neighborhood mm. of twenty or more. Uh, there, there were um, there was physical uh, harassment going mm. on. People were were throwing uh, rocks through gallery windows, uh, putting each other in headlocks on courtroom steps. It was not your typical art story, that's yeah. for sure. And some very rude comments being made uh, to to some people. And uh, oh yeah, and uh, and, and now, oh yes. On, before we on go, camera. before we go any further, uh, yeah. do you have any idea? Just so we have a sense, um, do you know approximately how many paintings uh, Morceau was was said to have created? There, there are widely varying estimates mm -hmm. of this. And we're talking uh, about authentic ones at this point in time. Right? Authentic ones, that's right, <laughs> or, or non-disputed, yes, uncontested. Yes. I believe it's in the neighborhood of five thousand paintings. He was incredibly wow. prolific. Wow, and okay. and would would by all accounts, you know, when he got rolling, mm. would would paint uh, multiple paintings at the same time. You mm. know, would have six or more really lined up and wow. and have the outlines done and be be mm. adding colors you mm. know to several simultaneously mm -hmm. uh, i have seen uh, so morso himself sadly uh, uh passed away in 2007 but i've seen other other artists in the course of uh filming this uh making this film working in the same tradition okay. uh uh tim tate uh, for right. instance mm -hmm. up in uh, thunder bay um who works very much in the in the same same kind of mode and yeah. it's it's something to see <clears throat>
Yeah. Um, so five thousand paintings, and three thousand paintings are are disputed, of disputed origin. Right. So um, yeah. In case that was the next question. Well, it, it was going to come up at some point right. because of that, and I just wanted to sort of get a sense uh, for our for our audience that they you know have an idea of what might an artist of that nature be able to create right. over over a given time. Because I have no idea how long it takes a, a, an artist to create something of a work of art like that. So right, I I, I suspect it it varies uh, uh, widely. Mm. You know, of course, from artist to artist, from medium to medium. Uh, and of course, artists also sometimes work as as uh, Morisot did uh, at different times with assistants. Mm. So that can can speed up the process, um, where certain portions of the work are are delegated mm -hmm. and and created, you know, under the supervision and to the satisfaction mm -hmm. of the artist. I spell that out just to distinguish it from works which are created completely unbeknownst to the artist, mm. uh, with his signature being added to it unbeknownst to him, which uh, are the kind of things one might call fakes. Mm. And uh, his his uh, his traditional name, Copper Thunderbird, is that what? Yes, I won't attempt to pronounce it, Yes, uh, you know, being a honky from Toronto. <laughs> uh, but yes, Copper Thunderbird was, was uh, uh, a name given to him apparently by a medicine woman uh, when he recovered from a very uh, bad childhood illness. Mm. And uh, it was spoke to, I suppose, the strength and spirit and power that he had in emerging from that from that illness and you know now you know one of the one of the characters we see in the film uh, is is perhaps one of the people you alluded to as an assistant. Yes, um, Richie Sinclair. Yeah, mm -hmm. R was a protege of of Morisot's and right. an assistant of his. Yes, and and he plays a fairly significant role in in the the authenticity of some of these uh, pieces. Yes, he does. He he is someone who has uh, uh, one of one of uh, uh, a group of people who spearheaded an effort uh, in the early two thousands to uh, expose online. Uh, more so paintings which they saw as being questionable. And as this story evolves, and I, I really encourage everyone, uh, if you're at all interested, uh, even if you're not, check this film out. It's not going to leave you disappointed. I think it's as, as engaging as any any great film out there. It's, it's a powerful story uh, that really... Uh, it, it just it's a head scratch it's a you know you scratch your head <laughs> and it, it's a, a wonderful engaging uh a piece to watch but uh, it's it has sad moments because you you think about uh what has happened with this artist and and his work and these characters uh these are real people these are real people it's unbelievable well thank you very much and and i i agree with you that it is an incredible story. And when, when Kevin first told me about this story, even though I knew Kevin, mm. I couldn't quite believe it. It just had so many twists and turns and improbable and, and almost operatic yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, scale of, of drama and tragedy <laughs> and, and that, you know, people found dead with paint on their clothes, you know, uh, um, as one small detail of the, of the, the horrors that emerge. I mean... You couldn't make this stuff up. Mm. And it was indeed only, I, I said to Kevin, you know, although although we were and are friends, you know, I said, uh, um, if, if I'm going to embark on this, I have to do it 
journalistically mm. and give both sides their their mm-hmm. say, and uh, um, you know that that Kevin could not have creative control over over the uh, the outcome, mm-hmm. which he readily agreed to, and mm. was uh, exactly how we how we proceeded. And it was when I started researching and digging into it myself that I saw that everything uh, uh, that I had been told, and then some, turned out to be turned out to be the case. I mean, what 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 I part some of the things that we uncovered in the uh, in the film were a surprise to Kevin as well. I mean, oh, I'm sure you know, because it, it, you get that sense <clears throat> from watching this. It's like. Uh, it's like every turning a page and and there's all, another rabbit hole to go down. Exactly, exactly. And how deep does this go? <laughs> oh, pretty deep. Yeah. And it does. Yeah. It yeah. does get pretty deep and it's very interesting. Uh, it, it's not lacking in terms of uh, characters. Uh, they all, you know, make it very interesting to watch this compelling uh, film. Absolutely. As in, in a documentary, at least the kind I like to make, you're looking for... You know, I, I consider it my. I've done a, I've done films on a range of subjects, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I uh, apprenticed with my uncle John, a a you know, multi Emmy winning documentary maker, who taught me early on the importance of casting. Essentially, mm. you you have to look at it almost like like you do with a fiction thing. People, you're expecting people to watch real people for for an hour or two, and they're not, you know, manipulated the way or scripted the way they are in in either sitcoms or reality TV. You have to find great characters, and I think we definitely achieved that in this film. There are I, great, great, I don't unbelievable think characters. You can deny that. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, these people uh, and they're strong characters. Uh, they have no bones about saying their piece. No, no, uh, and- they have no. Yeah, they they don't back away from the camera at all. No, nobody does. <laughs> not not in, no on, on on the contrary. I thought it might be bitten off at certain points. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> That's very true. Um, but it does, you know, it does. I mean, it it takes some tweer, strange twists, you yes. know, that that are unrelated, but they are related. Yes. Yes, I'm, not, so, I'm. I'm trying to get people interested, so I'm not without, trying to give things away by too by much talking. away. I no. mean, what what can we say? So so Kevin gets embroiled in this feud. These people are slinging all this stuff at at, at each other, and in the meanwhile, we we realize we begin to realize that <clears throat> this is a lot bigger than one mm. than one painting, mm. uh, and that this has been going on for you know this feud has been going on for a decade, and that it's been having a very dire effect. On the uh, value of Morisot's painting. Exactly, yeah. So incidentally, just to give a sense of the scale we're talking about in terms of money here, uh, um, the 3,000 disputed paintings at conservatively $10,000 each, we're talking about $30 million worth of artwork here. So making this both, at least in terms of of, uh, the quantity of disputed paintings, the largest art fraud case in Canadian history... And it gives you an idea uh, with that much uh, at stake as to why these different collectors are so uh, uh, at daggers drawn over mm-hmm. this issue. Mm-hmm. Because if one painting is proven to be fake in court, if one painting of this species, which perhaps we could also talk about, uh, uh, is proven to be fake, then it, it, it devalues all the others by extension. And just speaking of, of how, how you tell the, the uh, uh, dispute... The disputed paintings are are generally fairly easy to uh, uh, detect. Morisot typically, everybody agrees, signed his paintings on the front uh, with a series of Cree syllabics. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the disputed paintings, by and large, it's not the only signifier of the uh, of the disputed paintings, but the main one is that they are signed on the back 
in English uh, in what's called black dry brush paint, mm. which is as though he was painting using a black paint, and then there's a bit of paint left on the brush, and he just signed his name quickly in English mm. on, on the back. So turn over your Morrisos, folks. Uh, <laughs> if you've got a signature on the back, well, come and see the movie and see what you think. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. Listen, we have to take a short pause, uh, but we're going to come right back with more uh, compelling story here. Uh, so please don't go away. You're listening to Element FM and Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and we are talking about There Are No Fakes. It is a documentary film by Jamie Kastner. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Moment of Truth and Element FM. You're listening in Toronto and Ottawa, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, or on the Radio Player Canada app. And if you've downloaded that app and type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELM. E-L-M-N-T-F-M. Uh, you can listen on your device of choice across the country. We're talking with uh, Jamie Kastner. He has produced a documentary called There Are No Fakes. It is about uh, Novelle Morso and the, uh, the story around uh, uh, potential forgeries of, of his work and, and how this story has unfolded. Uh, uh, Jamie has, has told us how uh, part of that came through from a friend of his, Kevin Hearn, who is involved with the Bare Naked Ladies. And um, actually, you wanted to to mention Ke- he was actually he's actually involved with the the, the documentary itself. He's uh, he is involved with the. Do- I mean, it's important to <laughs> to spell out that he was not involved creatively right. in the in the documentary Musically, he was, per yeah. se. Yeah. But once it was done. Uh, um, Kevin, who is a friend and an extremely talented mm. uh, a musician and composer, offered to do the music for the film. Uh, now, whether this was out of the goodness of his heart or just so he could get a sneak peek at it, we'll never know. <laughs> but in any case, of course, I jumped at the at the chance. And so uh, Kevin uh, has composed original music mm. for the film, which is... Uh, Stunning, mm-hmm. and in fact, we will we will uh, have a soundtrack album coming out. Oh yeah, uh, um, not the, we're launching first at, at Hot Docs. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead here, no but worries. anyway, that the the uh, album release will be tied to the theatrical mm. uh, release of the film. Oh great! In uh, in a month or two, yeah. Excellent. <clears throat> now, um, one thing I wanted to ask about because we we're talking about uh, fraud around around paintings, and I'm sure it's not the first time that has ever happened. We've heard <laughs> Certainly about, not. <laughs> we've heard about this in other cases and, and well-known artists. Yes. So do you know much about that side of it? Is How uncommon or common is this kind of a thing to happen with, with major artists? I, I'm not, I'm certainly not an, an expert on, mm-hmm. uh, in, that, in that realm. But, you know, in terms of, of the, the, um, the research that we did for this film, I know we came across one statistic that said that 50% of the work in major galleries around the work around the world is is fake you know <laughs> in in museums and i'm sure the the further back you go the harder it becomes mm. to to trace mm. what's called provenance the the uh, mm. verifiable uh, ideally uh origin of origin of, of the, the uh, of the paintings yeah. of the history and ownership exactly uh so so i think it's it's not it, sadly it is not uncommon but one would think that that with um, more contemporary artists and certainly um, artists who are experiencing these kind of controversies in their lifetime, um, as was the case with Morisot, 
it ought to be uh, uh, it ought to be easier to flag and mm. disprove. Mm-hmm. And again, not wanting to give everything away in the film, I will give away a bit and and say uh, that Morisot was aware of uh, of of this controversy. Uh, in his in his lifetime, towards the end of his life, there are some interesting comments made to that point in the film, which you scratch your head even more thinking about this. And but I have to say that that when you were speaking, it it made me think of of one line that that one of the characters said, uh, and had to do with something of something about once something is created, right? Mm-hmm. It's. It's it you know it, it's much easier for someone else to just copy that, <laughs> right? To that extent, some lines, something similar to that was was. Yes, this was. I I believe you're you're talking about uh, um, a clip from one one of the collectors yes. who was on one side of the feud. Yep. Who is who was I had asked to uh, uh, explain to me how he knew that the Morisot hanging in his in his living room was authentic, and yeah. he compared it. He compared it to uh, a, a Rolling Stones song and said, mm, right. uh, well, you know, the Rolling Stones are special because they're the Rolling Stones. Right. They, only they can, they did it first. Yes. And pe- you can have cover bands afterwards. Right. To be perfectly honest, I'm I'm not totally clear on how that guaranteed the authenticity of the painting standing no. behind him as he spoke. Well, well exactly. But that was exactly. His, his argument. <laughs> exactly. That's what's so interesting mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. the comment. Mm-hmm. It was just an interesting comment to yes. make, I thought. Yes, you know? it was. It certainly was. One of many. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now, yeah. listen, you know, I, I think even if we, if we told the whole story, people would still, uh, you know, be be fascinated to watch this uh, yeah, we because can talk it still about leaves it. you it, it mm-hmm. still leaves you uh, at the end with more story to be told that's for sure yes yes i think it it uh, uh, as as dark and unbelievable as it gets and we we travel up to thunder bay mm-hmm. at a certain point searching for the trying to trace the actual provenance of of this painting and by extension other paintings of of its ilk and and yeah things start to get very dark and surprising and a lot less funny. I'll say yeah, that. that's that's very true. It does get quite serious uh, in many ways. But it's also what makes it also compelling and interesting is that you're also seeing artists. You're seeing artists work and and, and more so himself mm-hmm. uh, in clips. Um, so that keeps the you know it keeps that side of it very interesting because you want to know more about how he created and, and and how the artists that have come after him you know and are were influenced by him right. Right. And uh, then you get into the color uh, palette, you know, right. description and, and what he used and how he did things. And it was really interesting to hear how other artists talked about him and his color palette and what he right. would do. Right. So, it, you know, it keeps it, – it's very interesting. Well, it's fun. Thank you. It's it's fun, I think, from a storytelling point of view because – and I, I thought of it early on as as partially among among it's, – it's, it's a very unconventional story and as a result, I think, a fairly unconventional film – uh, uh, and hopefully the richer for it because it is it is not by any means a typical it's not quite this or that it's it's not just a, an art film it's not just a profile of an artist uh, uh, it's not just a, a film about appropriation of voice and and abuse of culture which mm. important as that mm. may mm-hmm. be is is you know a, a, there are typical kinds of films like that um, it there is a sort of almost thriller-like aspect to the story where you're, you're trying to get to the bottom of this mystery. Mm-hmm. 
And from a, a, a narrative, a storytelling point of view, that's very helpful, I think, in a way of you're not just discovering about this artist's palette uh, as interesting as it is, uh, just for the sake of of, of learning about it. Mm-hmm. It's because this presents valuable clues right. to try to solve the exactly. mystery of these uh, uh, disputed paintings. Yes. And so that is, as I say, from a story point of view, a, a fun way to to learn about his his mm-hmm. art. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and uh, um, and and it was. It's fascinating to hear certain people like his. <clears throat> they're they're in in this disputed this disputed uh, um, body of work is criticized by some for having kind of milkier color tones, and yeah. whereas we have. Uh, uh, his his uh, apprentices saying no he he would not w- water down the color yes. with white in right. that way right. he would he would wanted to go for the brightest uh, mm-hmm. uh, colors possible and you know straight out of the tube kind of thing and yeah c- things like that are are both have that kind of double benefit of being interesting uh facts about how mm-hmm. an artist's method and also yeah clues to this possible crime yeah um so uh, if you've just joined us, we're talking about There Are No Fakes. It's a documentary by Jamie Kastner, and that's, uh, of course, going to be uh, at uh, Hot Docs screenings. And I'll tell you a little bit about those screenings. Monday, April 29th at the Tiff Bell Lighthouse, uh, Lightbox rather, Theatre, 6 p.m. And also Scotiabank Theatre Cinema 3 on Wednesday, May 1st at 8.15 p.m. So there's a couple. There will be more screenings, and uh, I believe you said it was going to be on TVO? It will be it will be on TVO in the fall. That's right, right. in uh, September. And I though, and you were mentioning a little bit about how it's going to have uh, a release at a later date, and and maybe a little bit of a splash. Uh, that's uh, right. It's going to have it's uh, being uh, uh, Mongrel Media as the distributor, and it is going to be released theatrically as well. Um, we're looking at mid June in different uh, cities across uh, the country, and at that time we will also launch a limited vinyl edition Ooh. of the uh, of of the soundtrack of mm. Kevin's uh, beautiful compositions which really as i can now appreciate the music <clears throat> as distinct from the film i was watching it you know for 6 months in the edit suite mm. is it working in this scene because mm. of course that's a particular art and craft is is composing for film distinct from just composing for for you know records or the concert hall and um I can say that this music works beautifully in both contexts. Now you've been you've been making films for a while. You're involved with a, a number of things. You're both a writer, producer, and director. And I'm just wondering, has this project was this project different for you in any regard to making other films? It, it was a very uh, um, it was a very challenging film from a number of points of view. As I say, I've I've done I've done uh, uh, a number of films on a fairly wide range of subjects, uh, um, from the recession to uh, uh, anti-Semitism to crazy jazz fans to disco. Uh, but I would say that there is uh, uh, something. Uh, uh, actually, in my film prior to this, uh, the Skyjacker's Tale was about an American fugitive in Cuba and a 40-year-old murder case in the Caribbean that had prompted him to hijack a plane to Cuba. And we reinvestigate the trial. I, I bring these things up to say, uh, um, I think I was. this was a very challenging film to make. And I guess, thankfully, because of the 
the the range of work that I had done before, I felt ready to to take on right. the the many challenges of yes. this and and wading into tricky waters mm-hmm. culturally. And uh, um, I've dealt with I've dealt with uh, a number of tricky issues of race mm. in in films before. I made a film called Kike Like Me. To mm. give you one one <laughs> sense, I, I I also made a film called Django Mania, my second film which looked at the the adulation around the gypsy jazz guitarist Django Reinhardt, mm. uh, one of the, the great guitarists who's, who had this complicated kind of cultural legacy because he had been celebrated. He was a gypsy and thus one of the minorities that was persecuted by the Nazis in general. Mm. However, he in particular was celebrated by the Nazi high command. So part of that, that murky, murky cultural waters mm. and what does is, what is this adulation and this conflict mean to gypsies today was part of the heart of that film. So I guess wading into, wading into this, this is, but now I was doing it at home. Yeah. One thing that's also uh, uh, interesting, I guess, is that I haven't, even though I am, you know, a Canadian filmmaker and make Canadian point of view films, most of my films have not been set in Canada. Mm. And uh, uh, and this film is the first one in a number of years that is is very much very much set in Canada, and I think that that is a, a particular challenge digging into these kind of uh, uh, controversies in in your own backyard, and it is part of I think part of what we we uncover in in Thunder Bay about about the uh, uh, the the war, let's call it an art fraud ring and the crimes, exponential crimes that were occurring around that uh, is going to be extremely shocking to your average uh, uh, Southern Ontario white viewer, uh, as it was to me. And it, it you know, that, that sometimes, I guess, when, when people hear about Indigenous, you know, people in, you know, in, in urban Southern contexts, uh, uh, read about indigenous issues in the news or one thing or another, it feels like something far away, mm. either geographically or, or historically. Mm. Colonialism was something that happened hundreds right. of years ago, and yes, we've got to sort it out now. But And what we discover in this film, I think, is unfortunately uh, really shocking evidence that it is going on to this day uh, in 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 outrageous ways. Mm. Uh, um, there is a, a, a huge, this is a huge story of, of abuse on a cultural level mm. and on a physical level mm. of, of, uh, uh, vulnerable people. Yeah. And, um, so it's, I think it, it was certainly the, the, the darkest, I mean, okay. The Skyjacker's tale did deal with the murder of eight people. Uh, um, but, uh, in a way, this is even even darker and closer and closer to home. Mm. You know, it's it's uh, uh, so it's 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 very tricky wading into that, and one feels great responsibility to the uh, the incredibly brave characters who give who give their their testimonies uh, um, in this film. There are two uh, uh, First Nations people in particular who pretty well occupy the second hour of the film. Uh, uh, Dallas Thompson and Amanda Dalby, uh, people from Thunder Bay who who uh, talk about their experiences at at um, at considerable risk to themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, both both uh, certainly emotionally and 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 
you know, perhaps physically. I, yeah. I hope not. But I mean, they're incredibly brave, yeah. articulate, inspiring people. Yeah. And I, I, I felt in this in this film, as I, as I know, uh, was driving Kevin because the film starts off with Kevin's story, but then yeah. it 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 opens up into this mm-hmm. whole other uh, uh, world. But I know that that's what what uh, um, drove him to to really pursue the court case to the to the nth degree was to expose this story, and and I think uh, uh, we feel a, respons- a great responsibility to to. Make sure these people are 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 you know treated carefully in mm-hmm. this film and and happily they they have both seen the film and uh and love it and are very happy with it so that's that was a huge relief to me and that's that's good to hear and it's very true <clears throat> there are some uh what feel like very vulnerable moments uh to these characters that they're they're sharing yeah. Um, and uh, it, it, that's another part of the story. You also talked about uh, the cultural side and, and you know, the, the uh, uh, misappropriation of, of the art and all this and, and that indigenous, non-indigenous. It's, it's almost as if that's another story yet to be told. There, are, there is no a shortage of stories. You, you could have done eight films out of this. <laughs> And I, I would have been happy to actually, if only the the sort of financing and framework were there. Um, but the uh, uh, you know, as with all my films, actually, I, it doesn't pretend to be the final word on mm. anything. It's it's hopefully the starting point of of a conversation or of mm. a number of conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, I I do hope people are are as well as being entertained in the journey there. By the end of the journey. I hope they're they're as shocked and and outraged as as I was hearing hearing this story and discovering it to be true and and inspired to certainly you know discuss discuss further and and figure out how mm-hmm. perhaps we might do something about these things. Okay, listen, it's getting close to uh, time for us to take another break. If you have time to stick around, uh, we'd like to talk more. So uh, we'll take a short pause here on Moment of Truth and Element FM, and we will be right back with Jamie Kastner to talk more about There Are No Fakes. Welcome back to Moment of Truth and Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses, and we have with us in the studio Jamie Kastner, and I'm laughing only because he I just asked him something, and he gave me this kind of a funny smile <laughs> about one Uh-oh. of the uh, potential you know, things to discuss around this film. What we've been talking about, uh, there are no fakes. This, this is a documentary about um Norval Morso his incredible work of course he he uh he made an impact on the world you can't you cannot uh dispute when you see Morso you know you're looking at a Morso or at least what we thought was a Morso and and <laughs> well, there are a lot of real ones out there. so you often you are looking at a, at a Morso but yeah. but you mentioned that he he also was the creator of this woodland style of 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 creating uh, art Yes, that, he that, created a whole, that whole school of art. And fact. of course, there's some wonderful, wonderful pieces out there. We see them on murals and walls and, and buildings all over the place yes, now. Yes, no, I mean, very few painters create an entire artistic language mm. like that. You know, as someone in the film points out, you know, the group of seven, yeah. uh, as acclaimed as they are, did not create a language of painting the way mm. Morisot did. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. It sure is. Yeah. It sure is. Um, and, and so with this... You know, we, we talked a little bit also about uh, the the people and the characters involved and how uh, many of these people are are not associated with the indigenous 
culture whatsoever. They're just dealers. They're just people who are trying to make a buck. They're profiting yeah. from the indigenous culture. Yeah. And, and as in, in terms of what we discover ultimately in the film, in it's pretty horrifying. You know, they're profiting from some pretty horrifying stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some, some interesting uh, uh, details about how, you know, some of this stuff being sold out of the back of the car and, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Isn't just, that where you buy art? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, think I, you, I think you gauge the authenticity. I think the rule of thumb is you, you look at the car right. and how good a car is it. Mm. And if it's a Cadillac, then that means that the art is real. Right. I uh, guess I, that it. is the standard used apparently by some of the dealers in this film. Yeah. Now, his son is in the film. One of one of Morisot's yes. sons is in the film, Christian Morisot, yes, yeah. an artist in his own right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and what do you know about him? I don't know if I've I've seen or heard much about his his work. Uh, well, I think uh, uh, a number of um, Morisot's sons. Now, I I hope I'm not going to get this wrong. I believe he has seven children altogether, mm. uh, uh, and two of whom are daughters, if I'm not mistaken, and I hope I'm not. Uh, um, and a couple, uh, a, a few of the the uh, uh, sons have uh, painted at one time or another. As I understand it, uh, Christian uh, more so <clears throat> has uh, of of the sons who are painters, Christian has has the most of a career in his mm. in his own name. Would you say he's? Uh, it looked to me from the brief bit that we saw of him and what he was doing that he's he's sort of doing the same style and, and approach that 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 Norvell was doing. Yes, he was. He he works uh, again. I'm not an expert on Christian's work, but from what what I've seen, he he also works in the in the woodland style. Uh, he told me that he he uh, learned from his father, and he. Um, uh, uh, he also had the one, one show of his that I saw had kind of half of it was was in a very similar mode to uh, to Norval's work, and another half was was kind of a departure was was totally different tones. Like I remember, you know, a lot of black and mm. kind of shiny copper mm. uh, type tones and things that were not that same earth earth tone palette of uh, of Norval's. But as I understand it, uh, uh, you know, we were talking a bit about. Um, uh, Norval's rock star life, mm. and and um, he had. Uh, uh, I, I I'm not sure how involved he was in in his uh, children's upbringing. Certainly, mm. uh, uh, when they were when they were you know growing up, mm. um, I understand he was he was away a lot, and um, you know certainly, I think it's pretty well known. He had he had. Uh, uh, other relationships and mm-hmm. and um, my understanding is that he he remained on on uh, uh, friendly terms to the end with with uh, his wife the children's mother mm-hmm. um, but uh, but yes I think I think it was it was uh, it was probably difficult for all involved you know and that <laughs> again and not to disappoint as far as a film goes that whole side of his sexuality is brought into question and and talked about to some degree in the film as well. Yes, I think I think he was, uh, uh, by all accounts, certainly bisexual, and had had uh, you know, as we were talking about the the rock stars, uh, sex, mm. drugs, and rock and roll type mm. li- lifestyle. I think it's no it's no secret that that uh, you know Norval, like many like many celebrities, mm. uh, you know, enjoyed it. Right <laughs> now, it, it, there's a comment made by a, a, a woman. Uh, in the film uh, about uh, Norvell and uh, 
and how I guess he he was a he was a, a charismatic person. Yes. Uh, who uh, and, and it was pointed out that that all the women in the room at the uh, the art <laughs> art showing were, were were drawn to him. Well, they they may have been disappointed, but they. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I'm I'm kidding. But but the the yes, I think we're talking about it's one of the kind of art experts that we have talking in the mm. film uh, as we have. Um, we have Greg Hill, who is uh, uh, the curator of Indigenous art at the National Gallery of Canada. We have uh, Gerald McMaster, a former uh, curator of Canadian art at the AGO, now at uh, OCAD. And I think the, the quotation you're talking about is uh, from Carmen Robertson, who is uh, one of the foremost. Uh, she's an, ar- an art professor at uh, Carleton University. Mm. And uh, she uh, is one of the foremost authorities on on Morisot's work, has written a number of books uh, mm. about it. And she was describing, yes, that by all accounts, and you can see it in in the footage from the time, there there we there is kind of a goldmine of footage that we were able to draw on for for the biographical sections of the film. There are there are um, there are clips from from his very first gallery show mm. in 1962 at the Pollock Gallery. Uh, where he's being interviewed by a very young June Colwood, and they're they're almost they almost feel like he's wonderful, but they almost feel like SCTV skits. She is like <laughs> the archetypal, you know, Rosedale lady right. uh, uh, interviewing the the backwoods artists and <laughs> and totally messing up the pronunciation right. <laughs> of his name, and he's laughing. You see, mm. I learned from that. That's mm. why I don't attempt to do it. <laughs> uh, um, and. Uh, but yeah, so Carmen Robertson talks about and and this this is as borne out. He he was by all accounts and you can see it in the footage of him that exists an incredibly charismatic guy. He was he was a, an electric kind of speaker and he was just someone to whom people were were drawn. He was just one of those bright lights and you know it it can be characterized in in he he uh, he called himself a shaman. This was this is a, a matter of of you know was a matter of some controversy as I understand it in you know in in stricter circles, but uh, uh, he certainly, it, it would seem sh- sure that he had shamanistic qualities. Though I, I of all people, should not be bandying these terms around. <clears throat> in going back to his, his protege that we talked about earlier, um, do you know how long he, he worked or studied with, with Norvell? Uh, Richie Sinclair, yeah. who's in the film. Uh, I believe Richie uh, worked with him for... Um, you know, I don't have the dates right in front of me. I'm pretty sure he says it in the film. I, I think it's sort of like a three to five year period, something I, I like that. I remember a time frame being, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was a number of years yeah. in any case. It was in the early eighties, maybe from 1979 to 1983 comes to mind. Uh, Richie, if you're listening, I hope I didn't get that wrong, but uh, I believe it's discussed in the film. It was something like that. Yeah. And I believe they, they remained in touch uh, for the for the rest of Morisot's life and Morisot's life, I mean, we talked about about some of the ups and downs and the rise and the and the you know some of the the darker times. In the last twenty years of his life, so he died in in uh, um, two thousand seven. Um, he he kind of uh, uh, cleaned up. Mm. He he uh, uh, apparently you know laid off all all substance. And and uh, dedicated himself, you know, uh, uh, to he was living in Vancouver uh, by then, and he had he was living with uh, uh, his sort of uh, close friends and and um, a sometime business manager, also known as his adoptive son, Gabe Vadas, and his and his wife Michelle, 
and he uh, um, he teamed up with a, a, a gallery in Toronto, uh, the Kinsman Robinson Gallery, still in in Yorkville, who were his became his his official dealers in uh, for the last twenty years of his life. And he had he, he had a whole you know having had a bunch of ups and downs and having gone through a, a down decade or so before that he he uh, uh, climbed back up for the last twenty years of his life and was was quite prolific and um, and then sadly in in the last uh, six or seven years of his life you know increasingly uh, he got Parkinson's disease mm. and uh, uh, and then died in two thousand seven and you know all of this. It's interesting because when we set out to make the film, just apropos what we were discussing before, I, I had imagined, I think there's quite a bit of more so biography in there and we were, we were able to use some of this great stock footage that exists and a sort of treasure trove of photos and, and, uh, and people have praised, people who have seen it in advanced situations have praised, the, praised it for giving a, a good sense of, of him. So I'm, I'm delighted about that. Uh, I had thought we'd have a lot more in there, actually, I had imagined maybe half the film being biography, and it's just the the mm. particular demands of what you discover in the edit suite with a film. You you find out what what it, and there is so much story in this mm. that in the end the biography has to serve the mystery of the film. Right. Just like the the painting sure. techniques, it's like what do we need to know mm-hmm. about his biography to know how these these fakes purported fakes could have started being being made what were the the murky circumstances that that he was living in you know in thunder bay in toronto wherever uh that could have opened the door uh, uh to this kind of, to this kind of thing and and so anyway he he uh in in later years he got parkinson's and and this in in a rather disturbing way is used by some of the factions of people uh, um, to dispute whether he was capable of recognizing his his own work. Uh, um, so, I mean, this is the degree right. of yeah. kind of yuckiness mm-hmm. that that this debate goes to. Well, as far as I know, and having actually spent a lot of time uh, uh, for a couple of years with someone with Parkinson's, uh, while it affects you physically, it is not known to affect the mental faculties. Mm. I'm not a doctor, nor do I play one on TV, but that has been my uh, <laughs> my observation, <clears throat> <laughs> and, and that's pointed out in the film as well. Yes, uh, that yes. same that same comment. Um, now, I, I was wondering about um, his time when he was in jail. There's a, there's a yes. time, and there's a there's an overlap of time when there's a question of when some of these uh, fraudulent paintings were made and, and right. was he in jail at the time and could he have done that or those mm-hmm. kind of things. I mean, just as you're pointing them out. I mean, I have seen the film before, I promise, but you're reminding <laughs> me of, oh my goodness, the, the, the twists and turns in the story. One of the, um, one of the contentious areas of his biography is, is in the early 70s, he apparently spent time in uh, uh, jail in Kenora. Mm. Uh, over a uh, uh, domestic dispute, uh, alcohol was involved. And one got the feeling that at the time that if there was any kind of dispute involving uh, uh, an indigenous person, you know, the default position was just to right. throw them in jail right. and sort it out later. And uh, uh, that seems to be what, what happened with him. He spent uh, um, he spent six months in jail. Now, I should point out before, I do, there are, like many aspects of this film, there are two sides to this mm-hmm. story. So... Uh, um, <laughs> One side uh, of it is is saying that it was during this period in jail that he befriended 
uh, uh, a prison guard oh, uh, yeah. who who <laughs> essentially sort of commissioned him to paint thousands, it would appear, right, yes. uh, of of paintings in this excuse me six month period. I haven't done the math, but that sounds like an incredible, incredibly high number of paintings for six months. Um, and uh, this guard apparently stockpiled them, and then this guard's son. Uh, began to uh, release them onto the market mm. after the father's uh, uh, death or something like that. So that's what one side says. We then uh, um, got in touch with uh, uh, a gentleman named uh, uh, Bob Fox, who was uh, uh, sort of in the Ontario Ministry of Indian Affairs, as it was then known, uh, um, and was a sort of cultural attaché who had met Morso in Toronto visited him. He had since been relocated to Kenora, was a friend of Morisot's, visited him weekly, helped Morisot sell paintings in order to buy a house uh, for when he got out of uh, jail. And and Bob Fox paints quite a different picture. Yes. Uh, um, I won't give every single thing away. Let's leave it. Let's, Let's leave, it, leave at that. it at that yeah. because that's a, a great way to end the story. Uh, because if you think you know all the twists and turns that we've been discussing about this film, there are no fakes, you're mistaken. (laughs) There is plenty more to see and to experience. If you go to see this film, you will not be disappointed by a documentary maker, Jamie Kastner, and uh, you can see that film uh, coming up at uh, on Monday, April 29th at the Tiff Bell Light Box Theatre. And also, uh, that's Monday, April 29th at 6 p.m., also at Scotiabank Theatre Cinema 3. And that is Wednesday, May 1st at 8.15 p.m. You can get uh, tickets at theboxoffice.hotdocs.ca. Jamie, it's been great having you here today to discuss this. It's fascinating. Congratulations on the film, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, film, and, uh, and, and I appreciate you, that you bringing this to light. Uh, thanks for the people that brought this to the characters. You know, as you say, you almost couldn't write this. Uh, no, you know. it takes a village. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, thank you please, uh, make sure you, you try to get out to see this film wherever, wherever and wherever you can. Uh, I just want to leave. We, we, I don't know if we have time for a song, but we want to leave with a song, maybe. Okay. Um, and you, you talked about the connection between um, uh, Kevin and and Bruce Coburn and a, and a Morso uh, a, a cover. Kevin has told me that he first discovered Morisot's work from a Bruce Coburn album. Mm. Uh, um, and uh, there, of course, Dragon Jaws, Dancing in the Dragon Jaws. Mm. Uh, I'm getting the album title wrong, of course, now. But Dragon's in any case, Den. Dragon's, Dragon's Den. Oops, Dragons. There's so many Jaws, so yeah. many Dens in this film. My head <laughs> is spinning. In any case, uh, this, uh, uh, Kevin told me, is where he first discovered uh, uh, Morisot's work. And he also um, uh, he also has often quoted... Uh, most recently in an interview with the Globe and Mail about the film, uh, uh, the Bruce Coburn uh, song Lovers in a Dangerous Time, Kicking at the Darkness Till, mm. the, till the Daylight Comes In, mm. as being a description of, of his journey, which is reflected in this in this film. Mm. So I thought it might be uh, uh, fun to listen to the Bare Naked Ladies version of that song, albeit done just before Kevin joined the band, but mm. still, it's my personal fa- uh, uh, favorite version of the song. Sorry, Bruce. <laughs> Is there another connection with uh, with the Redbone? With Redbone, I, I, I had chosen a, a Redbone song, "Come and Get Your Love," as as it's uh, uh, from 1974, I believe, which was a time that uh, uh, you know 
I picture Nor- the swing in Norval hitting the clubs of Yorkville in his in his limo, living large. It was also his his considered his greatest period artistically, mm. and you know this was a uh, um, a, a disco hit by a uh, um, you know by a Native American act of the day. It's also uh, one of my son uh, Max's favorite songs, mm. and so for all those reasons, I, I thought it would be fun to listen to. Well, I'm going to leave it up to you. Which one do you want to hear? Come and get your love, or lovers in a dangerous time. Oh, this is I'll, I'll, this is this is I come on, we're <laughs> we're on element. I think we should listen to "Come and Get Your Love." All right, Jamie, thanks for coming in again. Thanks again, David, for having me.